We're right in the middle of a series on marriage, and that's a little bit difficult to stop one week and pick up where we are the next week, but we're delighted that you're here and honored that you're a part of our family together. A lot of information could have been shared. I could share this for a month. Obviously, I know that, but I've chosen to spend two weeks here and two weeks for the next two weeks on marriage and family and how this works itself out out of Ephesians chapter 5, which is where we are this morning. Last Sunday morning after the service, I got a text from a buddy of mine who said this. All right, all I keep hearing in my head is I'm her servant. I made the lunch. I did the dishes. I cleaned the car. I did her leaves. I did the laundry. You're killing me. Do I even want to come next Sunday? (laughs) He came and was here in the first service this morning. Every time I interview a couple prior to marriage, and last Saturday I did Jamie's wedding, that was number 224, so I've done a lot of weddings, and I try to get some insights into their life and their background, and I'll ask them a number of questions, and one of the questions is, who are your models? Who are you modeling your marriage after? Who are you not modeling your marriage after? What would you do different based on what you've seen grow up? What would you do the same based on what you've seen grow up? And when I ask him questions about how many models do you have and who has modeled before you the kind of marriage you want to emulate, sometimes it's a little bit of a silence in the room. Now, many of them will talk about their family background and their parents. I have found it fascinating in all these years of doing marriage, marriages that many of them will say, my grandparents are the model. I've watched their life. I've watched their love together, and part of it because they've been married so long and stayed together for such a long commitment. So watching the longevity of that obviously has had an impact on their life. But it's sad when I don't see them saying, all of my parents or my parents always in every time they answer the question. Now, a lot of people will talk about people here in our church. I thought it would be interesting this morning to find out in the first service and this as well, how many in our church here right now have been married at least 10 years and you'd raise your hand? All right, look around. That's a lot. How about 15 years? 20 years? 25? Do I hear 30? Who's been married 30 years here this morning? All right, got quite a few here. How about 40 years? How many in this congregation have been married 40 years? Any of you? All right, back here. Anybody else over here? All right, where else? 40 years. God bless you. That's awesome that you've done that here in our church. How about 45? Anybody 45 years? Back here in the back? Anybody else? 50, okay, over here. 55 years, 50 years back here. 50 years. God bless you. Congratulations. Over here? Well, how many, how about, how about 60? Warren, are you guys on 60? 65 when? When is 65? Wow, who said 67? Oh, 57, all right. Now, 65's got you beat up here. Sorry about that. Anybody more than 65? You heard me say last Sunday morning that only 2% of American couples, less than 2% of American couples ever get that far. So God bless you. What a great model in front of us as we watch it here on a regular basis. One of the other questions I'll ask them is, what are your fears? And the fear is divorce, word affair. What we commit to, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, that, that maybe he or she didn't mean it. Because right now it's really good. We're head over heels in love. We can't wait to spend the rest of our life together. Everything's going well. We're able to get by. We're physically okay. And 
all that goes with that, but to watch them say that, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and in health, and to know that 65 years later they meant that is awesome. And you had the opportunity, and I had the opportunity as well, Connie, I've been married over 43 years, to, to demonstrate to the generation that's following us what godly commitment looks like. And especially in the church, this is the place, and you hear me say how important that is at the end of the message this morning, stats I'd never heard before until a couple of years ago. If in one place, when they're trying to figure it all out, and they're so confused about what the world looks like, what marriage looks like, how I'm supposed to live it out, in a world that is so confused on that issue, isn't it awesome that they can look around at a church like ours and say, they do it, they've done it, they're doing it, they've committed, they're committed, they're still together. Now, I'm not here to talk about your pain if you're not still together with your mate. That's not my intention at all. My intention is to talk about godly marriages, biblical marriages, what that looks like, the foundation that God wants us to build them on, and hopefully again to send to the next generation a really good message about what it's all about. If you're here as a single guy or gal this morning, I'm not here to remind you of some of the problems that go with that or the pressure or the pain that you're dealing with. Not at all. What I am saying is God's Word has some great things to teach us about that, and it would be awesome for as many of us as possible to emulate that to the next generation so they know what a godly, good marriage looks like so that when they're trying to figure it out, they can watch us. And we can have the courage like the Apostle Paul who said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's one of the most courageous statements in all of Scripture. Because so often we say, well, don't watch me, watch Jesus, I'll let you down. Well, sure. But Paul said, okay, let, let me just say this. Watch me. Watch me. I'll live it out. And, and I'll imitate Jesus, and you imitate what I'm imitating. And that's an incredibly powerful statement to make. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, so I'm going to take you back there this morning. I'm going to read that section of Scripture. It begins in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's all flowing out of verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, like Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just like Christ loved the church. You'll find out how all that ties into verse 21, which is why he starts there. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you should also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Of all the models that God could have used, of all the models that Jesus could have used to explain his love for the church, love for us, not just CAC, but the love for the church of Christ who invited Christ into their life and follow him, of all the models he could have chosen to use, he chose marriage as a model as to what it ought to look like. And in this context here, he continues to use that over and over again. In the book of Corinthians, he talks about it. In the book of Ephesians, he talks about it. Peter talks about marriage. Matter of fact, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, and you can write it down somewhere, said, uh, Husbands, I want you to live with the wife in an understanding way, which means you've got her figured out. How many guys in here this morning have their wives all figured out? <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Good. Anybody else? Got your wives all figured out? All right. You know what makes them tick? 
You also know what ticks them off. You've already figured that out. You've, you've got it down pat. Live with your wife in an understanding way, which means figure her out. You figure out your hobby. You know how to do your hobby well. You know how to do your job well, whatever the list may be. I've got guys that could tear a car apart, put it back together again, not have any bolts left over. Fascinated by that. I'd have half a dozen parts left over. But they really don't understand. And they'll come to me saying, you know what? I can rip a car apart, put it back together again. I can, and they'll list us things, but I just don't figure her out. Well, you figured that out. And that's not near as precious as her. Because he goes on to say, live with her in an understanding way. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And when he uses that phrase, show her honor as a fellow heir, he's saying, husbands, value and prize your wives as equals with the grace of God. Paul says the same thing when he said they're new to Jew and Greek, male or female. All of us are one in Christ. Value and prize your wife. Treat her, as I say in some of the translations that I've seen down through the years, treat her as a precious vase. Now, wives, wouldn't it be easier to, easy to love your husbands and respect your husband if they treated you like a precious vase, something that valuable and something that worthy of that kind of treatment? Paul said no one ever hated his own flesh, but he cherishes it. And he uses the same context here when we really want to make sure that we do everything we possibly can to treat this gift that God has given us and the wife he's entrusted into our care and into our hands as valuable and precious as you can possibly imagine. Every gal wants to be valued. They want to be cherished. If you're single, gals, I say to you and I pray for you, I pray that you will choose a mate. I beg you to choose a mate who will treat you like that. If you're single here this morning, I beg you to look for a mate and date a mate and then eventually say yes to that mate who will treat you like that, as precious and valuable as you are and need to be treated. If not, dump him now. And I got to believe there's some moms and dads in the rooms who would like to say out loud, amen. Right? Treat her as valuable and as precious as she is. And guys, I beg you, treat women like that, not only while you're dating, but throughout the married life, as valuable and as precious as they are. Heaven help us in regards to marriage if we don't. Now, you have two sets of sermon notes in your notes this morning, in your bulletin this morning. One is yellow, marriage as God designed it. It's a lot of the notes from last week and some of the ones that I'm going to share this morning. And then there's another set that I'll get to in a moment. We said last Sunday morning that God laid out the foundation for marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. He gave them this incredible environment and gave them to one another. And, and Adam said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, thank you, God, for this amazing gift. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they will be one flesh for all time. And then came an all-out attack of the enemy. And they felt like God was holding out on them. They needed to try to figure it out on their own and reach for things on their own. And so they do. And sin and self-centeredness comes to the context there and destroys God's design and marriage as God designed it suffered the consequences not only did humanity suffer the consequences of submitting to sin and thinking God was holding out on us but obviously marriage as God designed it suffered the consequences of that and the question we asked last Sunday morning so what do we do and how do we get back to God's design and the answer is in 518 empty yourself don't let it be about you 
empty yourself, allow yourself to be so filled and saturated and dominated by the spirit of the living God that he begins to control your decisions and your thought process and your action and your mouth and your responses to people and your response to the relationship where you really want to day by day, moment by moment, submit to him. God, it's a new day. I yield myself to you. I'm going to face some enormous challenges. We've got a tough deal to go through. We've got a tough decision in our marriage. We're really struggling with some things. We fought a lot in these last few weeks. Please, oh God, in the name of Jesus, help me to respond well. Help me to think through my reactions, think through my responses. It is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, decision-by-decision walk with God, which is why he said be continually filled, dominated, controlled by the Spirit of God. And when I allow that to happen, every relationship in my life begins to change. In Genesis chapter 2, when sin entered the world, every relationship fell apart. With me, I'm ashamed. With you, I become self-centered. When it says that sin entered the world, they recognized they were naked. They covered themselves. And with God, I hide. I don't want to know you. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want you to see me like this. And when Christ changes my life and I allow him to control my life, all the relationships in my life begin to line up. I feel good about me. I've got a song. I just want to sing. Whether I can or not, as we said a few weeks ago, is never the issue. When I align myself with the spirit of the living God and I allow myself to be open to him, there's just some way I just want to express that. And most often it's done in music. I've got gratitude. God, I give you thanks for everything in verse 20. Realigns my relationship with him and myself and with other people. I submit to others out of reverence of Christ. You see, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus is not just something that you do on Sunday. The beauty of the gospel of Christ is something you live out every day of your life. Because with Christ, he can change my relationship with myself, how I see myself, how I understand myself, with other people and with God. And I can be made whole again. Teen Challenge is coming into our community, which I think is an awesome thing to have happen in this community in light of some of the things we've faced, some other great ministries in this town. And I went last Sunday afternoon or evening and listened to some of the ones share their stories about what God has done in their life. And a lot of them who are now running Teen Challenge have been formerly involved in drugs in some way or the other. And I listened to David and Justin and some of the other ones share their story. And I said, what turned you around? And the immediate answer to their life was, Jesus all the stuff that I was looking for, all the feelings that I thought it gave me when I was struggling with my self-esteem and how I was ever going to get through junior high, how I was ever going to be accepted by anyone, how I was ever going to survive college, all those things that I thought it was doing for me and then left me worse than when I started. When I found Christ, really gave my life to Christ, everything in my life began to change. The beauty of the gospel is that it does that. I understand that other people in the relationships and even with God, I can look him in the face and say, I'm not perfect, but thank you for what you did for me on the cross. And I listen to all of that and I recognize and understand that because of what you've done for me, I can now look you in the face and know that even though I'm not perfect, I sure am trying. That you love me and as Dave prayed a moment ago, nothing I do makes you love me more. Nothing I do makes you love me less. I mean, where in life do you get that? Because so much of life is conditional on my accomplishments or what I've done. And the place that these changes most noticeably should be seen is in the Christian home because it's where we spend most of our time with people. I've heard it said, I probably will say it in a couple of weeks when we talk about home and all of that, but home is a place I go when I'm tired of being nice to people. And sadly, that's a lot of what happens. What Paul brings us here in Ephesians chapter 5 is a reverse of the curse. 
Male domination, female manipulation, all the things that are said as a result of the curse are now turned around when I recognize and understand that I submit to other people, I submit to God, and I yield myself to His Spirit. Everything in my life begins to turn around and goes opposite of what happened as a result of the curse. And marriage, as God designed it, can be incredible. He repeats what's happened in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 2, here in verse 531. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become flesh, one flesh. Cleave, stick together as tight as glue, no matter what. You ever do that when you were a kid? Yeah, a kid. I've done that when I was an adult. You know, that super glue and now the gorilla glue. I have a friend who will remain nameless who was using Gorilla Glue on something and then answered the phone. <laughs> I won't even tell you his name, although he goes here to Community Alliance Church, but he had a hard time getting the phone off his ear. <laughs> Cleave to your wife, and they too will become one flesh. Verse 22 of chapter 5, wives, submit to your husbands. Notice it doesn't say submit to husbands who are doing it right. It doesn't say submit to husbands who are doing it right. It says, why submit to your husband? I think Stormy O'Martin, who wrote the book, Lord Change Me, I'm not sure if that's the right name. I know she talked about the power of prayer and a couple of other ones, and there's some other great books, and she began to pray for her husband because he was such an idiot, and, and uh, trying to figure it out it may not have been her, but it was, I'm sure some of you are saying, yep, I remember those kind of guys. And she began to pray and was praying for him, and all of a sudden God says, why don't you start praying for you? And recognize that there were some things in her that needed to change. Dobson had a great couple on just the other day. This week I was listening to where she realized and recognized that there were some things in her life she needed to deal with as well. And so often we're, I'll submit, but only if you do it right and it becomes conditional. You also notice the word obey is not in there. Do you have any ideas the amount of guys that have come up to me and said, now when we do the marriage vow, it's going to be love, honor, and obey, right? Because that's what I want you to say, and that's what I'm going to repeat, and that's what I want to make sure she hears. And I say to them, no. Well, why? Because it's not in there. Oh, it's got to be in the Bible somewhere. I love that line. <laughs> somewhere in the Bible it says. I said, no, it's not in there. Obey when it comes to children and parents and between people who work for one another, but it's not there. It's not love, honor, and obey. Love, honor, and cherish. Love, honor, and respect, but not obey. The word here is submit. A willingness in your nose to place myself in a position of a servant. And I love the fact, which is why so many guys want to start at verse 22. Why submit to your husbands? It's what it says. So submit, as opposed to going back to 21 where it said we submit to one another. As I submit to Christ and I place myself under his leadership and she places herself under my leadership, then we have the kind of marriage that God designed it to be. Notice that it also says to your husband. Not to everyone else's husband or to men in general, which is how many women are treated like children who obey or second-class citizens who serve. That's not God's design at all. Sadly, a lot of marriages function that way, but that's not God's design at all. And what I have to decide, am I going to follow God's design or the world? Because His work. So many sons are growing up learning to be takers and not givers, seeing women as objects to use instead of someone to serve. So many guys look for a maid instead of a godly woman that they can serve. God's design, men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how does he do that? Sacrifice and service. Matthew 20 is a section of scripture that I think I have there somewhere in your notes. 
when it talks about that. And I'd, I'd love to know the context because it's almost as if Jesus was watching them try to figure out what leading something looks like. Not necessarily in their home, although some of them were married, but they were trying to figure out what leadership looks like, and they love following Jesus, and they love what he was able to accomplish, and they were watching it around them, and they were watching the domination that went with that, and the demoralization that went with that, and how the, gent or the, the Romans were putting them down and being put down, and they thought, whoa, boy, I can't wait till Jesus, you come, and you're in charge, because we're, we're going to get them. We're going to put them down. We're going to put them in their place. And Jesus said, guys, come here a minute. Can, can I just talk to you for a minute? That's not how we do it. We don't dominate. We don't rule over. We don't pound our fists saying I'm in charge. You know how we do it? We serve. Now, I had to blow them away because all they had seen is domination and ruling over and all the things that went with that. But in Matthew, he said, now you've seen how the rulers of the Gentile, they lorded over them and they like being in charge and they like the authority. I just need you to know the one who is really great among you is one who's willing to serve. Wives, submit to your husbands. Place yourself under that leadership. Husbands, submit to Christ and serve your families. See, do you realize what it is? Both in the relationship of serving one another. How awesome is that? That we can have that kind of marriage and that kind of relationship was exactly what he designed it to be here. In your sermon notes, there are a number of reasons that marriages fail. The death of a child takes an enormous toll on the relationship. Sometimes 65 percent of marriages that fail are failing as a result of the death of a child. It's a huge issue for families to deal with. Sudden job loss, financial troubles, a myth of the greener grass, oh, it must be better somewhere else, or they've got a better relationship, or I wish mine was like that, thinking that it's a whole lot better. And you've heard me say before, and I'm sure you've heard it said, the grass on the other side of the fence still needs mowed. Unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations is another one. I did have to laugh when I was watching that video. Did you notice how young that couple was when he, she said he's bringing her flowers every month of their anniversary? And, and I want to go interview them 50 years from now and say, boy, dude, that was awesome. Are you still doing that? How's that working out? Are you still able to accomplish that? I, I told my wife we got married on or engaged on Valentine's Day and married a few months later in July. And, and I said to her, I want to I bring you flowers every, every Valentine's Day. And of course, that's the day that, that Hallmark and Florence love that day. And uh, so I did, and, you know, I got her roses for the first one, the second, and the fifth, and the tenth, and the twelfth, and the fifteenth. And then it said, wow, we're, we're going to be together for a long time. And I'm in ministry, and I, I wasn't making a whole lot of money. So every once in a while, a, a, a carnation would, would show up in that mixture of roses, and now 43 years later, there's quite a few carnations and daisies in the middle of that. I, I'm still fascinated. I love the fact, every time I call, there's a certain person that I use, I won't tell you who, but there's a certain person that I use to do this, and as soon as I call and tell them who I am, they'll say, which year is this again? And so they'll do it, and, and they'll count, and so they'll come back and say, okay, seriously, there really is 43 in here. I counted it twice. I wanted to make sure that it was right, and I thought, you know, they get it. They, they, they think that's, that's awesome for, for couples to be able to stay together that long. And I looked at that and think, I, I'm going to ask him 20 years from now how that's going every month uh, kind of a deal. But there are those unrealistic expectations that sometimes we think, well, it's always going to be like this. Misunderstanding, final one of the role of conflict uh, is huge. I just think it's not if 
you're going to have some problems. It's when and how you deal with those. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul said, look, can I just talk to you about this whole marriage thing? For a lot of you who've been told the lie that you think you have to be married to be fulfilled, that's not true. There's a whole lot worse thing. You know, gals will say to me, well, I don't want to be alone. There's a whole lot more worse things than being alone. It's being with the wrong person the rest of your life. And I've had gals write me notes that when I made that statement saying, I wish somebody would have told me that 25 years ago. Paul said, look, it's fine. It's fine. Matter of fact, it's, sometimes it's a whole lot better to be single. And let me be really honest with you. If you get married, and that's fine. There's going to be trouble. It's just, it's going to be hard. In Greek, the word trouble means press together. And when you press two people together, two things happen. One feels good, the other one creates friction. Two opinions, two personalities, two ways of doing life. And every once in a while, you rub one another the wrong way. And if you do that at all, any of your husbands just know how to push your buttons. Oh, come. Oh, don't, yeah, don't tell me you don't know. All right, toothpaste squeezed, rolled up. Which one do you do? I don't know. You know, just the list is endless of all the things. And, and you know it, and she knows it, and you're just trying to figure it out. But you as well as I know that there are times that you just do irritate one another. I, I, I don't always do it intentionally, but I know I do it a lot. It's fun now because I'll say to my wife, hey, babe, can I take a ride in heart? Yep, no problem. You, I mean, I'm just going to ride in heart. Yep, that's fine. Go ahead. Well, I was going to go out this afternoon. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to come home. That's good. You know, it's just. <laughs> does that mean anything? <laughs> Should I wonder about that? Should I worry about that? She loves solitude, and I'm not anything. I'm anything but solitude. I'm, never mind. We, we have learned to figure it out. But to be honest with you, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with friction. I love newlyweds who come to me after the first two months of marriage say, we're, we're in trouble. We're, we're in trouble. We had an argument. Oh, seriously. <laughs> There's nothing wrong. You're human. It's not when, it's if. But the issue is, it's not if, it's when. The issue is how you deal with it. I've had couples say to me, we've never argued in our whole married life. And I find myself saying, number one, you're kidding. And number two, one of you must not have an opinion. Because I believe that marriage is God, one of God's greatest tools in your nose for our sanctification. Marriage is one of God's greatest tools for our sanctification. You know why? Because when two people come together, all the issues of our life come out. And all the selfishness that no one confronted us with when we were living alone now comes out and someone confronts us with it. But when we stay together and work through the process, it can be one of God's greatest tools for our transformation. I still to this day remember a, a guy got married in his late 30s, I think, and he came to me a, a number of months afterwards, and he said, I had no idea how dumb I really was. I had no idea how I ever survived. And I said, why? He said, well, I had the house pretty organized, and she came and lived in my house, and, you know, the first day we woke up together, and she would go out and said, why? that was just stupid. Why would you put that there? And then I she opened the cupboard doors, and it's just, that's really dumb. And then when the list was pretty endless, and he said, I found myself saying, how on earth did I ever survive on my own for all of those years? When you're living alone, no one confronts you with the issues that are different. And now when you're with somebody else and you stay together and you work through the process, God can do some amazing things in transforming our lives if we stay and work through the process. Dave Johnson, a friend of mine, is a pastor in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, said marriage is like two pieces of tough meat being thrown into a pressure cooker. 
and then the heat gets turned up, and if those two treat each other with love and respect, honesty and grace, and stay in the pot, over time they get tender. And all the juices begin to flow, and they'll be delightful, but you've got to stay in the pot. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. I find men will fight to the death for a comrade in arms, but not always for their marriage and for their wife. We'll spend so much time mastering our hobbies, but not always mastering our marriages. Look, you all know what an outdoor guy I am, and I know everything about every weapon you can possibly imagine just happens to be my, my things I like and all that jazz, and I, I've learned it all, and I know it all, and there's probably not a question you could ask me that I wouldn't know or figure out. But I, I, that should pale in comparison for what I know about my, my wife and what I want to do in our marriage. We've got to make sure that we're passing along to the next generation a great model of love and commitment. But we cannot do it without verse 18. Empty myself and allow myself to be filled with God's spirit. Changing the course of marriage as God intended it to be will take a lot of time and a lot of effort. But God help us if we don't. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect for your husbands. That's God's design. Don't ever settle for less. In the second set of notes this morning, and I won't go into a lot of detail. It's all in there for you. But it's just simply a, 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 an incredible reminder of ways to really make sure that I'm doing everything I can to work hard at my marriage and my relationship, to make a commitment to God's standard. When you stood before a pastor and said, till death do you part, I, want, I really mean that. I meant that. Verse Psalm 119, how can a man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. It works. Drink water from your own cistern. I love that one. Guys, stay at home. Drink from your own well. Magnify the consequences of sin. Adultery will cost you way more than you ever imagined. Manage your mind. I think it says in your notes, 1 Corinthians. It should be 2 Corinthians 10.5. Take every thought captive. We live in such a visually stimulated world. Kids today, remember the years ago when Bush wanted no child left behind in the educational system and a number of years ago it was now no child left inside. I mean, they're just playing so much junk and doing so much stuff and they're so visually stimulated, overstimulated. It's going to impact a lot of their life in the years to come and they don't get it right now. And, and I know you as parents are trying very hard to do that, but everything is so visually stimulated. And if I don't manage my mind and take every thought captive and I see an image, good night and advertisements, the list is endless then I'm going to get down a road I, I don't want to get down. And sadly enough, sometimes you get down that road, there's no coming back. Man, I wish my wife treated me like that. I wish my wife looked like that. I, I wish my husband would just talk to me like you're talking to me here at work. I wish my husband did that. Once you start down that path, it's very dangerous. That's why we got to take every thought captive and make sure that we do as best we know. I have a list there for you of how affairs happen. I mean, nobody gets up in the morning and says, you know what, it's going to be 55 degrees today and sunny. I think today's a good day for an affair. I mean, nobody does that. It's within the context of known relationships. It's a lot of things that we just ignored and didn't deal with, and all of a sudden we're in a context of a, of a relationship that we're, that's going to destroy everything. And so I've given you some, just some guidelines and some, some things to remember to guard your marriage, minimize the opportunity for it to happen, talk wonderfully about your mate make sure that you're accountable to other people and i have some things in there from howard hendricks a number of years ago 
And, and one thing I found with accountability, and a lot of us are in small groups, which is awesome, and accountability groups, and we've got guys that keep us accountable. But accountability partners only know what you tell them. They really do. They only know what you tell them. I remember I was one of the Wesley guys, Charles or John Wesley, had this thing they always started Sunday school class with 100 years ago, four or five questions about your life and your devotional life and all that stuff. And then the last question, have you lied about, lied about any of the first five? Which is a great start, but who have you given green light to who can walk into your life and ask you anything about anything? Not just what you tell them, but are honestly open to understanding what's going on in your life. Choose your friends carefully. The list is endless. I've got some great resources in there for you. It, you you've got to work at it. The next generation is so desperately looking for what works, especially in a world that seems to be spinning out of control. And marriage now has is, is, been on the chopping block for the last number of years. We're certainly uncertain about the future. They want to know what works. And when you've got so many couples in here who have been married 10 or 20 or 25 years who are emulating that, God, help us to do it well so that they look at us and say, oh, okay, that's, oh, I get it. That's awesome. Let me ask you a question. If I were to say to you this morning, you apply all these principles, you'd be obedient to God's word, you come to church on a regular basis, you got a 50-50 chance of making it in your married life. How would that make you feel? Mm, give it a shot. I mean, you got a 50-50 chance of making it work, I, I guess. If we're not careful for that, because that's the stat we have heard for years. 50% of marriages fail, 50% of marriages inside a church fail. We've heard that stat for years. And if we're not careful, what that does is say, well, okay, maybe God can and maybe he can't fix my marriage. And maybe applying his principles are okay and maybe they don't work that much. And the, the thing that we are going to go to if we're not careful is, well, then does God even work? Does Christianity really work? Does it really make that much of a difference? But what if I were to tell you, in reality, those who attend church on a regular basis, who continue to go to church on a regular basis and apply godly principles, have an 80% chance of making it work. Wouldn't you want to say, this really works? There's a resource in your notes this morning, good news about marriage, from a gal who's done eight years' worth of research. She's a Harvard researcher, did eight years' worth of research and found out all those stats that we've been hearing really aren't true when you do all the research and really it's only 31% of marriages fail and only what, 15 to 20% of marriages fail of people who go to church on a regular basis who continue to apply biblical principles. You know what that says? This works. It works. It's not just something I do to fill in an hour of your time. It's not something God does so that we can say we had our devotions. It really works. And if we apply the principles and submit ourselves to him and be obedient to his word, we can say to the next generation, like Paul said, hey, watch me. Watch me. It works. I'll show you how. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. God help us if we don't. But if we do, it can make an enormous difference on the next generation. I'm going to ask you to do something maybe awkward for you. I don't mean it to be that way, but we, we did it in the first service, and, and I want to do it in this one as well. If you are willing, if you're married here this morning, and if you're willing, just in a minute, don't do it now. If you're willing to stand, not only take a stand, but stand up and say, 
I will do everything I possibly can to obey biblical principles and follow God's design for marriage so that the next generation who's watching me can understand that. You may be single here this morning. Maybe you're a single mom or a dad by yourself who say, I at least want to do it. I don't have my mate here with me, but I want to do that this morning. I'm going to ask you before God and your church family, would you be willing to stand right where you are so that I can pray for you, but you can say visibly and visually to anybody who's watching you, other young couples in here this morning who are thinking about marriage, look, you go to a church of people who are willing to make a commitment before Almighty God who do believe this works and want to show you how. Would you stand? For those who want to make that commitment. Whoa. God bless you. Father, you've seen us this morning. You've heard our hearts. You know that it's not just something we're doing for the moment. And not because I've told them to, because they really want to. They want to take a stand to the world. They want to take a stand for the next generation. They, they want to be the kind of person who lives the truth of your word in front of the next generation. Little boys and little girls who are just trying to figure it all out maybe not has a lot of models and a lot of the kids they go to school with aren't as well and nobody has any. God, I thank you that here all over CAC and the first and second service, we've got dozens and dozens and dozens of people who are willing to say, I will. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I will do everything I can to live godly principles for the rest of my life together until I see God face to face or until he takes one of us home. I'm not going to do it perfect. God, you know that. I sure don't. But please help us to really live out what we agreed to do here this morning in front of you. I love the fact that it works. It really, really works. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being willing to take a stand. And I hope those who are considering marriage look around to know there's some great models at Community Alliance Church who want to show you how. Next Sunday morning, I'm going to talk about the most precious gifts in your life, your children. And I'd love to have you back for that. Thank you so very much. If I can pray for you, I know there's a number of families. I know uh, Gray, Kevin, and uh, Caitlin want to be prayed for this morning with their little girl. And if there are others that will be here this morning that we can pray for, would you come this way so that we can do that? God bless you. Have a great If there are, yeah, Jordan and, and Katie, if you come down, if there are other family members that want to come, that'd be great. Some elders here this morning and anybody else that wants us to pray for them.